Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Forum, the official podcast of the Diplomacy Law and Policy Forum. Today, we have with us Maha Hussain, who is the research associate at RSIL, and she's also contributed this month on a piece around climate change and sexual violence and conflicts. Um, thank you for being with us today, Maha. Happy to be here. Um, so today we're going to be talking about climate change and armed conflict. Um, <clears throat> I find that this is such an interesting topic, especially when you look at it. There are so many prisms from which you can look at the environment generally and, and climate change and how it relates to armed conflict. So you can look at it from the context of climate change as a driver of armed conflict, mm -hmm. how climate change can be a consequence of armed conflict. I was really surprised to note that I think the Pentagon is one of the highest emitters in, in the entire world. Um, and also the environment as a casualty of armed conflict. And the fact that you can use the environment as a means and method of warfare. So, for instance, even a hill could be a military objective because you could be using that to, you know, have higher ground. So the extent to which the environment plays a part in armed conflict is something that I think isn't really talked about enough. When we talk about climate change, and especially this year, we had the IPCC come out and it was all very doom and gloom scenario. It was like, you know, we're not going to be able to keep it to probably 1.5 degrees in the next 20 years. Um, and, and we're not really looking at it enough from a national security perspective, I think. Um, and I was quite happy to go to the national security dialogue this year and find that they were talking about climate change a lot, but, but, but I think that there's still not enough out there because I don't really link the two. I don't look at climate change and I don't immediately think about a consequence of it being an increase in armed conflict. Um, so I think it's really good that we're having this discussion and that this is the theme for this month. Um, yeah, I definitely feel like it's interesting that we're discussing this, especially because um, climate security is getting increasing attention from the academic community, from uh, a policy uh, standpoint as well. There were a couple of side events at COP26 this year, which mm. talked about climate security. There are a lot of people who are um, trying to get climate security on the agenda for COP27. So that'll be really interesting. I definitely feel like these discussions are going to increase in the coming year and hopefully we'll get more progress on this front. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And especially when we look at it in the sense of what do we even mean by climate security and the extent to which there is so much different research on whether um, climate change does directly or indirectly lead to um, more armed conflict. And the whole idea now is that actually you're, you're seeing more research come out about this or people are actually investigating this and the idea that Okay, even if it doesn't directly lead to more armed conflict, it's a threat multiplier, right? Like it loads the dice and makes conflict more likely. Um, I find it so interesting that when they've looked at this in sub-Saharan Africa, they looked at a one degree temperature increase in the summer and they looked at that as increasing I think up to about five percent, the the risk of civil war happening that year. Um and even even that this is not really a new thing. We've seen, I think, the first war ever between city-states in like thousands BC were was between water. It Wars have always been fought over natural resources. So we're looking at it, especially in terms of timber, cocoa, diamonds, wars happening over natural resources all the time. And the idea that we're going to have more wars over water in the future, especially. Um, so yeah, it, it is something that is just going to, you know, ramp up pace really going mm -hmm. forward and the, the extent to which we're going to expect law and policy. So the idea that COP now is now 
you know, taking note of this and having more side meetings and having having events upon this. And also, when we look at it in the context of armed conflict specifically, and when I look at it in the context of IHL, um, it's really interesting to note that IHL is very anthropocentric. It's all about human suffering. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really care about the environment so much. Um, so all of the, so the provisions that we have in IHL, which kind of protect the environment, really protect it as a means of, you know, the effect that that would have on the local population. Um, so we're looking at articles 35 and 55 of additional protocol one. You can't, you can't use means and methods of warfare, which may cause widespread long-term and severe damage to the environment. What do these terms mean? We don't know, but you need to have them cumulatively satisfied, which is a huge issue. You need to have them widespread long-term, and by long-term, we mean decades yeah. <laughs> under AP1, which is, which is a very high, uh, very high threshold and severe damage. And so when we've looked at the environment and how it's been harmed, uh, during armed conflicts, the most important one was Vietnam. So we had AP1 being drafted after that. We had the NMOD protocol being drafted, the convention being drafted after the Vietnam War. And uh, the US basically used herbicides to defoliate the area. So it was dropping these across like thousands of kilometers, defoliating the area. And it led to deaths, cancer, long-term effects, mutations, birth defects among the Vietnamese uh, civilian population. And states kind of looked at that and then they said, no, we're not going to allow this. And so you had these provisions drafted in AP1 and you had the NMOD <coughs> convention, which pro- which prohibits environmental modification techniques. So you're not allowed to weaponize the weather during an armed conflict. Mm-hmm. So you're not allowed to provoke earthquakes, you're not allowed to provoke tsunamis, any kind of natural disasters to win, to win the war. Um, at the same time, when you're drafting these provisions, even what happened in Vietnam might not satisfy that cumulative condition mm-hmm. because it, I mean, you're not going to see the effects on for generations. You're not going to see the effects for decades, uh, in Vietnam. So it's kind of, um, it's a good effort. <laughs> it doesn't go far enough at all. And especially in the idea that, okay, well, you know, objects which sustain the civilian population. Mm-hmm. So you're protecting agricultural land, you're protecting cattle, but where do you go beyond that? There's huge gaps here in IHL and the idea that maybe they won't be fixed by international environmental law because we don't know the extent to which international environmental law continues to apply in an armed conflict when you have IHL occupying the field. Mm-hmm. And what I find really interesting about Article 35 and Article 55 of Additional Protocol 1 is um, the threshold is so high that, like you said, most situations aren't really going to um, satisfy that threshold. And we're not going to find out whether they satisfy that threshold yeah. until a lot later. And especially with the term widespread, you're looking at hundreds of thousands of acres. So these small scale um, disputes or skirmishes on borders, they're not going to apply in that situation. And then the last bit of it, um, it has to be severe damage. Yeah. And severe hasn't really been... Um, classified or uh, defined further. Mm. And I think part of the reason for that is states don't want to quantify exactly what severe means because once they set that threshold and the threshold is material, then it's likely that a lot of their activities in armed conflict are going to violate that, um, this protection, and they're going to be harmed by that. So there's this kind of... um, 
push between the people who are really working towards getting protection for the environment and then states who want to make sure that they still have leeway in armed conflicts and it doesn't limit their um, ability to achieve their military ob- uh, objectives. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And especially when we look at it in terms of you're completely right in that states don't want these additional obligations, right? They would rather not have to worry about the environment when they go into an armed conflict. And also the ways in which the only state to yet be penalized is Iraq because of what it did in Kuwait. It, it set fire as it was, as the Iraqi army was retreating from Kuwait, it set fire intentionally to about 600 oil wells. And now it's had to pay about 85 billion US dollars, which are, which are kind of being, I think, uh, the latest report I read was that they were being taken out of its petroleum exports and it's still not paid that back, right? So we're talking about the first Gulf War and now we're in 2021 and they're looking to pay it back maybe next year, maybe this year. Um, and to me, that's, that's insane that we've only had one. We had NATO, you know, take out industrial sites, which caused all of this toxic decontamination. We've had the US and Vietnam. Mm. We've even had the, uh, Israel in Lebanon when it took out a power station in Lebanon and it caused, um, 12,000 to 15,000 tons of oil being um, released into the sea, right? Israel was told by the General Assembly, not the Security Council, uh, that it should be paying compensation. It has not, of course. Um, but when the Security Council said it to Iraq, we're seeing that that is being imposed, That and Iraq remains the only country which has been held accountable for em- environmental damage. So again, you know, even where you have accountability, even where you say, okay, no, we're not going to, we've set up a compensation commission, we're holding this state accountable. It is, again, very political in the ways that it plays out. You're not going to get a security council resolution on every state. You're going to get it against Iraq because everyone was so annoyed by them going in and occupying Kuwait. Um, so yeah, and, and the idea of where does that accountability come in, especially when you have arguments, when you have conflicts over natural resources? So um, even um, Articles 35 and 55, you see their incorporation in the Rome Statute. So it is a war crime. Um, but the problem is that it's not, it's not a grave breach, which means that there is no onus on states to prosecute such a but such a violation of you know anything which causes a means and methods a use of a means and methods of warfare which would cause long-term and severe and widespread damage to the environment and additionally you don't see that that is a war crime in non-international armed conflicts mm-hmm. and we're go- when we're going forward the civil wars that are going to be fought are largely over natural resources and largely going to be non-international we're not going to see as many interstate disputes. So if there's no accountability on that front, if that's not been incorporated in the Rome Statute as a war crime for NIACs, um, what does that mean for how important we're holding the environment? really in an armed conflict. So it does paint a pretty bleak picture um, about what the environment means to people, especially in armed conflicts. Um, Because like you said, this connection of the environment to individuals and how it benefits individuals is always paramount. So we're not really looking at the environment in and of itself, the importance of biodiversity. We're looking at biodiversity and how it benefits civilian populations, how it benefits um, uh, the agricultural lands and water resources um, sustaining populations. Yeah. 
Um, so that paints a, ble- uh, a pretty bleak picture, but I think it's important for us to highlight at this point as well the ILC draft articles on um, responsibility of protection of the national environment in armed yeah. conflict. So those draft articles produced in 2019, mm-hmm. um, which have been reviewed by states, states have been giving their comments on them, and in 2022 they're going to be um, they're going to be looked at again, taking into account the states' comments. Um, and so I feel like these are articles really fill that lacuna that we had. Mm. Um, so they yeah. deal specifically with non-state armed groups. <coughs> so uh, non-international armed conflicts will be dealt with by those ILC draft articles. And more than that, they actually have a couple of um, articles on corporate responsibility. So corporate due yeah. diligence. And I think that's really important because going forward, I think the issues that we're having, multinationals and um, their exploitation of natural resources, resources in the third world mm. that's an increasing issue yeah yeah and i i was i was gonna say that i think that that's one of the best things that the ilc routinely tries to do which is to prevent cross-border harm but also in in the form of you know protecting the environment as well but also to impose liability and accountability on corporations mm-hmm. to kind of pierce that veil, veil because under international law you don't really see corporations you don't really see individuals you see them through the lens of states so it's about whether the state has failed to prevent something, mm-hmm. about whether the state, you know, bears direct accountability as a state agent or some, you know, Article 4, Article 8, uh, state organs or state agents. And so it is about, okay, finally in international law, we're getting to this point now where we realize how important and how powerful multinational corporations mm-hmm. are. And that often you're not going to go to a developing state and be the coca-cola company and be less powerful than a developing country it's not it's not going to happen you you are going to be more powerful and in the sense that developing states look to investment so much require it so much they're not really going to care about the environment Mm -hmm. but how do you impose that liability to be like no you have to and also to impose that liability on multinational corporations because i'm like they should be the ones shelling out (laughs) like it's not fair on developing states so we're also really looking at I think in the past we had this discussion about um, damage to the environment is necessary to get that economic development. And now we're seeing a a real line in the sand being drawn um, where we're saying that actually environmental damage isn't inevitable and there is an extent to which environmental damage will be acceptable. And beyond that threshold, we actually need to hold companies accountable, we need to hold um, states accountable, um, non-state armed groups accountable. So I think that's good because we're really separating this, um, the dimension of economic uh, opportunity and economic development and protection of the environment. Yeah, I agree. I agree, though I'm a proper cynic when it comes to this, especially because I'm like, when did that come about? Oh, when the the developed world had it already industrialized. And then it was like, hey, guys, what about the environment? And then the developing world was like, we want to have the opportunity to take our citizens out of poverty. You know, you guys did that. You economically developed. You were, You didn't give a, you know... You didn't care about the environment then. And now you guys are saying, oh, what about sustainable development? Make sure you care about the environment. Um, so I, I feel like, and I was watching this Al Gore documentary where he met with these, uh, with uh, some Indian politicians and they were just like, you guys did that. Give us the chance to do that. Then we'll care about the environment. And the thing is that 
at the same time, it's really sad because actually we can't give anyone that. And and I think that's the thing that climate change and armed conflict have in common is that it's incredibly unfair and it's incredibly unevenly distributed. So where are we going to see the armed conflict hotspots in the same place we're going to see climate change hotspots? And so we're going to we're going to see a complete reformation of the international order. We might not. I mean, when African states and low lying island states went to uh, negotiate the Paris Agreement, they were like, you cannot say that we'll keep it to 1.5 degrees of warming. That is a death sentence for us. You can't say two degrees of warming. Sorry, that is a death sentence for us. And so the the compromise reached was, okay, well, then we'll keep it to well below two degrees. What does that mean? That's not, uh, that's not binding. Um, and, and there is this, and at the same time, all oil producing states were like, okay, well, if you guys are going to move away from fossil fuels, we want compensation. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, there's such a glaring, in a, such glaring inequality between states which want to continue to exist and states which want to continue to reap the profits that they have reaped up till now. Um, and it is, going to be something that is incredibly unfair felt incredibly unequally uh the heat waves that we see in uh pakistan already the kind of flooding that we see the natural disasters that we're going to be seeing also they're gonna they're gonna increase so much more than we're gonna see in the in the uh, developed west um so i i completely agree with you and i i think that is very unfair but i also think that there's no there's no time now to talk about how unfair it is, which I've just wasted a few minutes talking about how unfair it is. But it's not. It sucks. But the developing world really does have to develop sustainably. We can't do it the way the West did. Definitely. We are at a tipping point. Um, and like you said, there really is that um, that that fact that climate change isn't equal. It's felt unequally in the world, yeah. and um, the effects of climate uh, of climate change and the effects of armed conflict, when they um, compound, the effects on the population, yeah. especially in the third world, are very drastic and um, very severe. So, um, on that, let's discuss a little bit about um, the the effects of armed conflict on the environment. So, how does it really affect the adaptability of um, individuals who are already in conflict states, yeah. um, and what does that mean for them? Yeah. So, I think I think the issue is also that they then have to face these armed conflicts going on, poor governance, they're incredibly fragile states already, which then devolve into an armed conflict. And you have these fights over resources. And of course, as always, it's the civilian population, which suffers the most. Mm -hmm. And also, I think, um, I think it's quite interesting to look at this on a very individual level as well. Uh, we see the rise of angry young men. Uh, so these are people who are left then jobless and without livelihoods because of climate change. Um, if you have a drought and ordinarily you would be a farmer working in the fields, what else are you going to do? And the ways in which those people are then so prone to being radicalized and to recruitment from um, groups. And we saw that, you know, organizations like ISIS were kind of taking advantage of that in terms of Iraqi farmers who had suffered from a drought. Um, even in Pakistan, you can see the effects of that, right? The, this rise of angry young men who are so prone to radicalization. Mm-hmm. And so I think even on a very individual level, uh, we see that the most vulnerable again are going to be the most impacted by climate change and by armed conflict. Um, and the extent to which you're going to see any kind of political will to to support those people. Because even if we're looking at Pakistan as a country or the global south as as an entity, which is going to be the most affected, even even within these countries, there's a huge unequal spread of 
who people, which people, and it's all along caste lines, which mm-hmm. people are going to be most affected by it. Um, and those are the people who are going to be out on the streets who are not going to have any hope for the future, who are going to be incredibly nihilistic and who also will not understand terms like climate change the way we're, we're saying them, but also will be the ones who deeply feel the effects of that. So they're going to be the ones who, who can talk to you the most about what has changed over the past decades from, you know, from a farming perspective, from the agricultural land perspective, or even from their prospects perspective. And, um, that really is a recipe for unrest. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that one, um, especially because we've already seen it, like you said, um, with ISIS yeah. in Somalia as well with Al-Shabaab. Yeah, um, yeah. They're really taking advantage of the um, root, like the situation with climate change and they're radicalizing individuals. Um, and the extent to which these armed groups like ISIS and Al-Shabaab, both of them, they've weaponized water. Mm-hmm. So they cut off water supplies when the Iraqi army was coming. Um, they've, they've, you know, bombed dams on purpose to like end water supplies to, uh, to their opposing forces. So they, they're really cognizant of how important these natural resources are and how, how, you know, control of them means that you're, you're in a strategically very much like better position. I actually saw a really interesting picture of uh, the Philippines after a cyclone hit. Mm. Um, so terrorist, like members of terrorist organizations were giving out boxes of rations, right, trying yeah. to get people to support them. Mm. And that I find very interesting because you see a state in which the social institutions that are meant to protect these people and give them the kind of relief aid that they need are just failing. Yeah. And um, then you have an alternate power stepping in and really filling that vacuum, giving people what they want and then getting their support. So it, it really is a delicate situation. And I think it's, it's likely that we'll see a lot more of these situations as we go on. Yeah. And I think it's something that's not been talked about enough, not nearly enough, because if you do talk to people who even, so I've, when I've been reading a lot about Afghanistan and the Taliban or even about ISIS, it's like, Ordinary people were like, okay, yeah, but when they came into power, our sewage was taken away. You know, at the end of the day, we actually had administration. We actually had some form of governance where we didn't have any before. And the fact that the allure of these armed groups is not merely ideology at Mm -hmm. all, which is, I think, a very, very reductive and like simplified notion. It is the notion that like, okay, do these people make my ordinary day-to-day living better? Mm -hmm. Is there refuge or like, you know... Uh, sewage at the end of my street at the end of the day am I getting water today am I not what kind of rations are they giving out that kind of thing and I think I think that is how they kind of curry favor with the local population why why they get support like the Taliban everyone was so surprised that you can pump billions into an Afghan army which would then up and scupper the second the Taliban were coming in and that the Taliban could just come in and and meet you know as well quite rapid support, maybe not in Kabul, but elsewhere. And I think that also gives us a good outline for what we need these states to be doing and what we need humanitarian relief organizations and operations to be working on, right? We need to be working on the individual and we need to be identifying what's really going to change their day-to-day life. Um, So with climate change, when droughts happen, we need to figure out how relief operations are going to provide them with an alternate source of water, how they're going to provide them with economic opportunities so that we don't fall into those cycles of conflict. Um, and I think in this sense, 
we've got a lot of um discussion around it but the issue really is implementation mm. um you don't see states really implementing to the extent they need to or recognizing and directing their efforts to the right organizations or the right people yeah yeah and i think um especially when you see things happen which are like deforestation like who is getting the money from all of this deforestation right the timber mafia in pakistan is such a it's a huge huge business a huge business and the fact that uh, we actually we i was speaking to somebody who was talking about how the timber mafia in swat was actually going to fund the insurgency as well because mm-hmm. they you know having control of these natural resources is really is really lucrative um and so the idea that okay if you're going to replenish jobs in the community replenish livelihoods how are you going to do it one way would be through afforestation drives you know like give these people their community back give them ownership of these forests and jungles that had been taken away from them that kind of thing and and the look into pumping that back in a way which is environmentally very friendly but also builds up a community which can then protect these uh, which has that ownership of these these lands and this environment mm-hmm. and i think then one solution we might have is to strengthen the rule of law in these states um to stop corruption the illegal trade of uh, timber in somalia the illegal trade of charcoal yeah. um because a strong system system that values the rule of law is going to be able to limit that and once you limit the um funds in the hands of these organizations mm. then you're really going to see an influx of ep- uh, economic opportunity into communities and yeah. into the hands of people yeah and and it's it's so much like when you see the conflicts in Africa ab- about over diamonds or cocoa or timber um it is very interesting because there is so much I mean they used tall soldiers I've heard that in DRC there are bags of diamonds on the streets and they're they're fought over I mean they've had civil war for decades um the same in the, in the Central African Republic and the idea that you have so many foreign entities also which are uh very invested in having these civil wars continue because it means that you get cheap labor you get a cheap access to these materials because they're being fought over and i think i i think there in terms of whether we need more or less humanitarian relief i think it's it is a case of less foreign intervention <laughs> less humanitarian relief intervention uh rather than more because i feel like i feel like these these conflicts are being fueled by that kind of thing um Yeah, that's just an aside point. <laughs> yeah. So, we've discussed a lot about the relationship between um protecting the environment and climate change, but how does climate change um uh, affect conflict? Um you talked previously about um climate change as a threat multiplier, climate yeah. change as a driver of conflict. What do those terms exactly mean and what relationship um do we think climate change has to conflict? So, the idea is that there might not be a direct incre- uh, causation like there is a causal connection between mm-hmm. climate change and armed conflict but in many ways it will just load the dice in making conflict more likely and it does that through um poverty so you will see an increase in poverty due to uh climate change when you're taking away people's livelihoods like we've discussed you will see economic and political instability as a result of climate change mm-hmm. as people rush to uh, and especially in developing states and especially fragile weak where you see weak governance and there's less of an uh, nobility um 
to take on any of the repercussions of climate change. Say if you have a natural disaster, that area and where you have weak governance and a fragile state, that area then becomes a kind of um, like hotspot for an armed conflict because you will have increased in poverty. You will have nihilistic people who have just lost everything and you don't have the state with the resources to which to go in and help those people in the same way. And all of that combined means that you will have the recipe for greater armed conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so another very important point is about displacement, right? When yeah. you have a yeah. climate disaster um, and large communities of people are forced to leave their homes and settle somewhere else, yes. um, yeah. you're likely to get tensions between the new community that they go to and these um, displaced people. Yeah. So those conflicts, we're, we're really seeing them a lot in um, Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. And especially then when you have these cleavages among these communities uh, along religious lines, ethnic lines, tribal lines, um, it is all, it, it all kind of is able to ferment unrest. We were even talking on the last podcast about Karachi and about how Karachi as a, as a city has increased from in the last few decades, it's increased 115%. And largely that's due mm. to like waves and waves of migration, um, both internal and also external. And it's, it's really interesting how much that's given rise to this uh, large sprawling metropolis, which mm. has about 200 criminal gangs and also like, you know, ideological terrorist groups, which is crazy for, for a city that size. Mm-hmm. And so one of the interesting things that I came across in my research was um, the why we call um, migration, so rural to urban migration, migration, whereas we call um, the displacement as a result of a disaster displacement, mm-hmm. because displacement as a term has this... Um, connotation that there was a sudden movement and it wasn't really intentional Mm. whereas migration is kind of a long-term decision and usually you have more agency over that Mm. decision but really I think a lot of the um, rural to urban migration that we see even in Pakistan across the world a lot of that is motivated by like um, climate change Mm. and also by conflict so I I don't know where we really draw this line and whether we should be dividing between these two because really how much like how much um agency do people have when their livelihoods are ruined because of droughts and they're forced to move to urban centers to um make like make their livelihoods so yeah yeah that, that i found a very interesting term because really the the difference in language makes a difference as well yeah and i think that's something that um we talk a lot about in the refugee context in Mm -hmm. terms of you need to to you know qualify as a refugee you have to be escaping from persecution or the threat of well-founded fear of persecution and the idea that you know the need to delineate between them and economic migrants. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, especially when it comes to Afghan refugees who are fleeing to Pakistan, it's so hard to make that distinction because like, sure, they might be fleeing from a threat of persecution, but also they, they want to come here for their economic well-being. Um, and, and the ways in which you're, you're then forced to draw a line between the two and also, uh, how to gauge well-founded fear of persecution mm-hmm. and the fact that in Af- in uh, the Organization of African Unity, 
included in their in their definition of refugees the fact that if you were fleeing from social unrest that that would automatically count as uh, you would be automatically counted as a refugee and the extent to which climate change can then fit into that because if you're fleeing after a natural disaster um if you're fleeing because you know there's been a drought or there's been flooding um the extent to which the refugee regime or any other regime really can can would want to accommodate you Mm-hmm. And I think the real risk there is that we open the floodgates to too many yeah. people. And that argument has never really sat well with me because um, those people are suffering either way. Yeah. And those people need help either way. So this concept of, well, if we allow climate change refugees, then we'll just have too many people migrating and we won't have the resources for them. Mm. Um, but whether or not we classify them as climate change refugees and we allow them to get the, the benefit of being a refugee, yeah. they're, they're still going to be going through... Um, very severe situations and they're, yeah. they're still going to be harmed. Yeah, so uh, climate change refugees don't fit into the definition of refugees. So there's mm-hmm. no such thing as a climate change refugee because the categories under the Refugee Convention are so limited and climate change is not one of them. Um, at the same time, I, I'm a little bit, I agree with, I agree with that perspective that, okay, there's still persecution. What they're fleeing from is still terrible. It's still a humanitarian need, which should be fulfilled by, you know, states who have contracted, who have signed the refugee convention. At the same time, that's not what states want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't want to take in people who've just uh, ran away. It was, it was, a very, uh, it was at a point of history where it was very clear that they only wanted to take in, uh, capitalists fleeing from Russia, <laughs> from the Soviet Union. Like those are the really, and the Jews who had fled from the Second World War. Those are really the people that they wanted to take in. There was no idea that they would be taking in huge amounts of third world refugees. And you see that in the ge- geographical limitation of the, of the 1951 mm-hmm. convention. Um, but also the idea that we see so much belly aching on the news and the media about Afghans and their refugees. And when you look at it, third states up until I think 2015, um, there were 1.4 million in, um, Pakistan, Afghan refugees. There were 0.9 million in Iran, I think. And in the entire rest of the world had taken 1500. After all of this pontificating and belly aching about Afghan women, about how we need to save these people and about how they're suffering under the Taliban, it's like, <laughs> put your money where your mouth is and take in refugees. I mean, the, the world kind of came together for Syrian refugees in, in some kind of a way, but otherwise you don't, you don't see that. And I think that then again, it falls largely on developing countries in the ter- third world to be taking in these refugee flows. Uh, refugee flows from armed conflicts caused by countries in the global north. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that uh, theme really carries on to the discussions we have about climate with between the developed world and the developing world. Yeah. Because you have the developing world screaming for some sort of support, some yeah. sort of funding for um, climate change adaption, uh, adaptation, because they are the ones who are really being affected by yeah. it the most. Yeah. But you have developed states which are really co-opting this dialogue and they're, they're trying to be at the forefront of talking about climate. But when push comes to shove, like at COP26, they're not really putting their money where exactly, their mouths are. Exactly, they're, yeah. They're not helping us in the ways that we need to be helped. Yeah, and and I think um, one of the good principles in international environmental law is the common but differentiated responsibility mm-hmm. principle, which says that really um, 
you guys don't have the same obligations under this because we acknowledge that there's been that it's been unfair, historically unfair to developing states. And so we're going to we're going to notice that and we're going to put it in the form of funds transfers and technology transfers. And a lot of those haven't come through. And I, I know now a lot of states are like, oh, but COVID, COVID, COVID. So it'll be interesting to see at the next one, at the next COP. And, um, you know, when we when we go to uh, five years after the five years after the Paris Agreement, um, to see how far states have gone in their, um, in their commitments in those terms. Mm-hmm. So like one of the other... Um topics that I realized in this link between climate change and conflict was um, a psychological effect on people. Mm. And this is what I found the most interesting because I wouldn't have thought about it. But um, rising temperatures affect the psychology of individuals in oh, such really? a way that they're more predisposed to violence. Oh, okay. And that hmm. manifests in the form of interpersonal violence, intercommunal yeah. violence. It's not really going to manifest on an interstate level. But I found that really interesting. I, yeah, I never would yeah. have thought that rising temperatures could affect psychology in some way. Yeah, that's... And it, it's quite cool as well that we're investing in research and trying to figure out the exact effects of this change because we're in an unprecedented um, terrain, right? Mm. We haven't seen this kind of climate degradation. So we, we don't really know what effects it could have. Yeah, yeah. And it's especially interesting when you look at the heat waves that are going to, you mm. know, pass over and have killed thousands in the summers in Karachi and in Delhi and Mumbai. Um, so if those heat waves are going to lead to more tension and more more violence, even interpersonally and even intercommunally, intercommunally that could lead to a civil war at mm-hmm. some point. It could lead to, you know, these localized non-international armed conflicts between tribes, between ethnicities, between religions. Um, so yeah, it is it is pretty much a recipe for disaster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think it it illustrates this um area where we can really invest more in terms of research definitely yeah this um so using data to really understand climate change and its effects on people and then its effects on conflict and the effects of conflict on climate change yeah so one of the really interesting things that i found was um when we look at climate change and the effects on populations we're able to really model how populations will be affected in the next five years so what Mm. access to resources they'll have what water is going to be available for their crop land um and once we really look at that um we can then determine how predisposed they are to conflict so we can step in and prevent it by using data to really Mm. model the regions that need help and that we need to invest in yeah yeah so i think that'll be very important for states going forward to really pinpoint who needs help and what kind of help they need Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. I didn't know that that data was going on, that research was going on, but that's really, really interesting. Yeah. But again, we get the issue with uh, collecting data in a conflict zone. You yeah. you have troubles with um, where it's coming from, who's collecting it. Um, but I think this is definitely something that should be looked into further. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I think that's been a really interesting and in-depth mm-hmm. look at climate change and how it, you know, uh, correlates with armed conflict. Thank you for joining us and I hope you'll join us for future episodes.